Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. And uh, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. And Lord willing, we will finish chapter 2 this morning. Have you guys been blessed by this so far? It's such a good, good reminder of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. That the series is called Enough because Jesus Christ is certainly enough for us. And uh, you can never go wrong uh, studying more about who Jesus is. That's always a great study for, for anyone, you know. Um, that should be something that we're very versed in. Who is Jesus? Because ultimately, if, if your eternity is based upon who Jesus is, you should know who Jesus is. And uh, so it, it's been a great study. That this, this letter actually gives us probably in more detail than any other uh, letter in the Bible uh, uh, regarding who Jesus is. And so uh, Paul has done an incredible job already, and he'll continue to do a job, uh, um, good job of helping us understand that Jesus is enough for us. You know why that's important for us to understand that Jesus is enough? Because I'll let you in on a little secret. There is an enemy within you. You know that? There's, there's a legalist and a liberalist, like multiple personalities going on inside of you trying to tell you that, hey, you know, you have to do these things in order. You, you know, we want to contribute to our salvation in some way. That's the legalist. The liberalist says, hey, man, you can do whatever you want because Jesus is enough. And so we need to have the right information. We have to have the right mindset when it comes to Christianity. That, you know, Jesus Christ paid, paid for our sins, past, present, and future, uh, in, on the cross of Calvary. That he died and rose again from the dead. And so our, our, our state of eternity is set if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, right? But also, at the same time, as we just sang at the, the last song that we sang, also, you know, many, many other passages in the scripture talk about enduring to the end, talk about abiding in Christ. There is there is uh, works that go along with salvation. James said it himself. He said, show me, show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And he's not saying that he's works-based in terms of his salvation. He's saying that works will accompany your salvation. In other words, the liberalist inside of you also needs to die. There is a call for Christians to work for Christ to be engaged in the mission that he's given us. And, that, and that's kind of what the book of Colossians helps us understand is there's a balance in, in all of this, that, that Jesus has done it all. That's why he said to tell us die on the cross. It is finished. He's done it all. And yet, there is work for, to be done by us. And so what an encouragement this morning. Um, Paul, is his aim here is to address what is called uh, by theologians, the Colossae heresy. The Colossae heresy, and we've been talking about what that is. That's uh, basically you have this mixture of Jewish theology and, and Gnostic theology, and um, basically Paul's saying, no, no, neither of those can be mixed into Christianity. Christianity stands on its own. We don't mix other philosophies uh, in with it, and in and of itself is enough. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Stand with me, and we're going to read. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, uh, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. His, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festivals or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up with outreason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for the declaration made to us that we are complete in Christ. We need nothing else. Will you help us to cling to the cross this morning, Lord? To see the risen Savior and that his works are sufficient for us. And Lord, will you help us to embrace the grace that has come down? Lord, we don't deserve anything and yet you give us everything. And so help us to receive what it is that you desire for us to receive this morning. God, we want everything that you want for us. So come now by your Spirit, speak into our lives, Lord. Change us, transform us, Lord. Renew us this morning. Blow a fresh wind of fire in us, Lord. Put us on the path that will ultimately lead us uh, to the mission that you've called us to individually and corporately. So Lord, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I, I recently got a call on my phone. Uh, That's usually how you get a call, but I got a call on my phone the other day, and I looked at the caller ID, you know, in case I didn't want to answer it, in case it was one of you guys. No, I'm just kidding, but in case it was somebody that I didn't want to talk to. No, I looked at it, and, I, and it said AT&T, uh, and then it said a fraud alert. Anybody else get that on their phone ever? So a couple of you also, crooks, have your phone number too, so that's good. You know, the reason why you're getting that alert is because the, your carrier, your, whatever one you have, is notifying you that they're flagging you that the number that, that is, um, is calling you is in some way, shape, or form uh, associated with some fraudulent activity. And so it's good to know, isn't it? 
That way, if you want to mess with them, you know who you're talking to on the other end. You know, you can say, hello? Yes, I have a copier. The number is 9563. You know, you can, am I the only one that does that? I guess so. Okay. But, but we need these alerts so that we can be prepared. That's the point. Uh, how many of you have ever had the Social Security Department call you on the phone and say, hey, I just need your Social Security number and your bank account, and if you'll just give me that, we'll make sure that we get you this money that we owe you. And, oh, okay, here we go. Don't do that. It, there's been alerts in on the news about these kinds of things. Social Security will never call you. That's what they tell you. Hey, if you get a call from Social Security, it's not Social Security. It's somebody else trying to, fraud, trying to hack your bank account, right? So, you know, they'll only contact you by mail. So, you know, we have that kind of a, a, a alert in our, in our society today. What about like on Facebook? You know, you see these people that say, if you get this, do not open it. The other day I got a, 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 a messenger uh, reply from a, a fellow named Jan Mayberry. And, you know, <laughs> it said this. Check this out. I get this. It's a video embedded in the messenger, and, it's, and it has the emoji of grief and worry. And it says, we know what you did. We captured, you know, it said, hey, you're showing up in this video. And I'm thinking, what did I do? What did I do? What do they got on me, you know? And, and that's what people do. They start clicking on the thing. Oh, what do they have on me? And you know what happens? They spam everybody in your list. They hack you. We have these alerts that are going on all over in the world. Why? Because we live in an extremely deceptive world. And, you know, the enemy is at work trying to rip us off, trying to rip us off in any way, shape, or form. That also applies spiritually. Not only is he trying to rip us off from the things of this world, but he's, he's ultimately the goal is to rip you off spiritually. His motive is to kill, steal, and destroy. It always has been. It always will be. And so the Lord says, listen, you have an enemy alive and well in this world, and I need to, to alert you about his deception. You know, the enemy, his, his trick is deception. There is no other thing that he does. He has, he has a one, he's a one-trick pony. Deception, deception, deception. It doesn't matter what you're tempted with. It's always in the format of deception. In the Garden of Eden, how was Eve tempted? It was with deception. He said, did God really say that if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die? You won't die. Deceptive. He is the deceiver, Jesus said. And we have to be prepared for the deception that we will face in this life. And so Paul is writing to these believers in Colossae, and he's saying, listen, I need to warn you about the deception that you are potentially falling into. It's a potential, it's a, it's a, it's a potential uh, deception that will lead you so astray that you will be disqualified. And, and so it, it is a, it's a serious matter. Eternity is at stake. And so when, I, I want you to get the feel for when Paul is writing this. When he starts out, he says, see to it. The kind of emphasis that he's putting on the words that he's pinning here in the last part of chapter 2. This is serious business. This is something that, that you and I need to listen to. He didn't just write that for them. He wrote that for you. Because you and I will also face the same thing. Deception. 
The enemy will try and deceive you. I've broken the, these verses up into two, two, two different sections. The first uh, is the warning against deception, and the second is the way to overcome deception. So first, we're going to look at the warning, where Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements of the spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. How many of you guys have ever seen something super dangerous in somebody else's life? Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your, 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 your relative or your friend or whatever. You see this like red flag, it's like, uh, and they're going to make a decision on this, and, you're saying, and they're telling you, hey, this is what I'm thinking, and you see the red flag. What do you do? You warn them. Hey, 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 I think you should step it back a little bit. Maybe that relationship isn't right for you. Maybe this get-rich-quick thing, this investment, this $5,000 investment isn't the right investment for you because you don't have $5,000, number one. But, but, you know, you see the, the red flag. You're trying to alert them of a potential de deception, right? Now, how many of you have also watched people not take the alert, not receive the instruction from you, on the red flag, take that step and end up falling on their face. Anybody ever seen that? Uh, we, we see it all the time. Like, hey, I've done that. Anybody else done that? Yeah, we've all done that. Listen, alerts and warnings are for a reason. If someone loves you and they're, they're telling you beware, chances are it isn't because they want to see you fail. It's because they want to see you succeed. Right? Now, kids, if you're in here, listen. How many of you have ever not listened to your parents and have gone exactly the way that they said it? You don't, they're not looking at your hands, but yeah, exactly. You know. God wants us to listen to the warnings that he puts in his word because they're meant to help us succeed and not meant to keep us from failing. He loves us that way, and and so Paul writes here in these first three words, see to it. See to it. Like that word, that phrase means take heed or beware. It, it is a present tense imperative. It's something that you should always be doing. Something that you should never, ever get sidetracked. And we get complacent in life and we let our guard down. And before you know it, boom, you're deceived. It happens. So Paul's saying, don't let your guard down. See to it as you walk through life. Keep your guard up regarding deception. Don't be skeptical, but be skeptical. Don't be, don't be skeptical in the sense of, you know, I can't believe that, but beware because there is much deception in this world. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He wants us to beware that there is a captor out there that's looking to literally the word kidnap you looking to kidnap you to rob you away from what God has for you and so when you get the knock on the door that says hey we're from this organization we'd like to give you one of these watchtower pamphlets or we'd like to invite you over to a Bible study that we're having to talk about the kingdom of God Your response ought to be, see to it, that no one take you captive. Now, what that doesn't mean, by the way, and I think it's important that we understand this, that we slam the door on their face. We say, you're a deceiver. Boom. 
No, listen, listen. God sent somebody to your house, to your door, so you could witness to them. How amazing is that? He wants you to witness to that person. So you see, the deceiver in our world could also become the discipler. And, and that's the, the other thing that we need to understand. People that are deceived oftentimes don't even know they're deceived. They're just passing on what they know. They're just taking, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses, they do an incredible job of discipling their, their, their people and knowing what they know so they can knock on your door and so that they can stumble you and deceive you. Are they deceivers? Like, is that their heart? Listen, I know a lot of Jehovah Witnesses. That's not their heart. They, they're, they're good people. They really believe that they're following the Lord. Same with Mormons, the same idea. Majority of those people are just deceived and they don't even know it. And God has put you, the light of the world, in their path so that you can expose the, the, the cracks of the foundation of their faith. And do you know God is faithful to expose those cracks? Aren't you thankful for that? He exposed the cracks in my life when I had the human philosophy of, oh, I'm a good person. Oh, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and I'll be good. The Lord knows that I'm, that I'm, trying, that I'm not a bad guy. Oh, no, the Bible says no one is good. That includes me. God was faithful to shine his light into the foundation and show me that my foundation is nothing but sand. It's not based on anything. And he is faithful to do that to these people, and sometimes he's going to use you. You know what's the problem with being taken captive is? That you can, you can, you can get spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. You know what Stockholm Syndrome is? So, so in 1973, two guys went into a bank. They took four bank employees um, as, as captives. They kidnapped them. They held them for ransom for six days. And after the six days, when the police went in and stormed the facility, guess what? The four captives refused to be rescued. Not only did they refuse to be rescued, but then they refused to, to stand up against their captors in trial. And get this, they even raised money for their legal fees. What happened? That's, it's called, it's a psychological, uh, you know, way to deal with grief and sorrow and, 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 and extreme fear and, and all of this. And, and when you are shown kindness by a captor, mixed with the great fear that you have, somehow that messes your brain up. And your brain starts to have association. You bond with your captor. And before you know it, you're supporting your captor. Patty Hearst did the same thing in 1974. She was uh, kidnapped by some Sibanese Libyan army, and, and she ended up, uh, you know, after a few days, dude, committing bank robbery to support their cause. You know, we can get spiritual Stockholm Syndrome through deception. And I think many of these people that are stuck in the Jehovah Witness uh, uh, religion, the Mormons, the Muslims, you know, all these different world religions, majority of the people have this spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. They don't even, they, they don't understand the deception. They're, they're taken captive. They've been kidnapped. Paul says that there are two things that we need to beware of philosophy and empty deceit. The word philosophy means to love wisdom, 
But Paul's using it uh, to describe vain speculation. Like he's using buzzwords in their culture in Colossae to say, listen, I'm going to use the same words they're using to speak to you about their philosophy, about their, um, you know, their, their higher thinking. Their, but it's, all of these things are just simply empty. They're deceitful. Their philosophy is not wisdom. It's falsehood. And that's what he wants them to understand. Not only that, but he's also telling them that they are, they are, they are passing off empty deceit. That, that literally is speaking about seductive thoughts that are not real or misleading and erroneous views. Paul's not pulling any punches regarding the, the Colossae heresy. He's telling these guys, these are the things you need to watch out for. Now, there are two specific deceptions that are being masked within this philosophy and empty deceit. He mentions human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. First, human tradition. You know, the Jews were masters at human tradition. You know that? The Jews actually honored the Talmud, you know, and the Mishnah, which is basically nothing more than a commentary of the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And so they took the, the Mishnah, and they, they, they were just writings of men. They made those, those common, these commentary of these various different rabbis higher than the scriptures. They looked to the Mishnah more than they looked to the Word. And so they, they followed human tradition rather than following the Lord. False teachers, listen, will always honor human tradition above the Bible. You might be able to, that's why we want to stick to scripture when we're talking to people. You know, particularly when we're talking to people who are, you know, of a religious bent, Jehovah Witness, Mormon and stuff, because you want to stick to scripture because it's the scripture that's going to cut through the deception. God's word is is active and alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. You know, you, you want to use it in these situations. You know, as you're ministering to, a, to an unbeliever, you, you don't want to just, you don't have to quote Scripture at them, but you should use the Bible because the Bible is alive and it knows how to speak to people. And so, you know, it, Jesus was using the Word of God against the, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes to help them see their deceit, but they were unwilling. And that, that's where... The, the human part of it comes in. God is faithful to shine the light into the deception, but you have to be willing to receive what he's saying. So he's telling them, these guys are stuck in human tradition. They're honoring human tradition above God's word. We see that with evolutionists. You see that with, you know, religious zealots and such. Not only that, but Paul mentions elemental spirits of the world. Now, this is a little bit more complex to understand what he's talking about. Really, the scholars have boiled this down to three different interpretations. They believe either he's speaking about these elemental spirits of the world is speaking about the law of Moses. That could be one interpretation, although probably not likely. Secondly, others believe that the, it was a reference to the four basic elements of Greek philosophy. You know, you have earth, wind, fire, and, and water. And these are all associated with Greek mythology. So that, that could be what he's talking about, too. But more than likely, the interpretation of elemental spirits is a reference to elementary stages of religious practice. Kind of like the ABCs of maybe Judaism, also maybe Greek mythology, or whatever, whatever religious system that is being uh, spoken of. And so that's probably what he, he's saying. He's talking about the elemental 
elements of these various deceptive religious thoughts. He wants them to understand that there is a spiritual deception behind this that is going to lead people to hell. It's potentially going to, you know, get these guys off track. And so he wants them to understand that, that the elemental, he wants them to understand the elemental uh, uh, philosophy or spirits of the word, that, that Jesus Christ is enough. And that's exactly what he is speaking of. Now, so he, he gives us the warning regarding deception. Now he's going to tell us about the, way to, the only way to overcome deception in verse 9. He goes on and he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all of rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There's a repeated phrase in verses 9 through 15. What is it? In him or with him, right? I mean, he, he keeps saying in him and with him. The idea, what, what Paul is saying is that the only way that we can overcome deception is to know the truth which is found in Christ and with Christ. Christ is the answer to deception. And that's what he's trying to help us understand. The more we study the Lord, the more we study the Word of God, the more we immerse ourselves in this truth, the less potential for us to be defrauded in any way, shape, or form. Do you know what they do with people that work at the U.S. Treasury? They never let them touch a fake bill. They only let them touch the real thing. That way, when they touch the, the fake thing, they know it's fake. You shouldn't be studying world religions. You shouldn't be looking at how can I best witness to, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, so I better get in there and study it. Listen, God may have a call on your life for that, and that's a special call. But generally speaking, us in this room probably don't need to do that. What we need to do is know the word more. What we need to know is to know the authentic real thing. And if we just stick to the authentic real thing and we know that really well, there's no way for us to be deceived. And that's what he's saying, man. He's saying just stick with Christ. Just stick with the Lord. Stick with him. He, you know, be in him and walk with him and you will not ever be uh, deceived. You know, Jesus warned us. You know, so, so what, we, what we believe about Jesus and, and the Christ that we are seeking matters, doesn't it? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 4 through 5, he said, see to it that no one leads you astray. He's telling you, warning, that's a warning. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You hear that in these false religions, folks. Oh, no. This Jesus is Michael the archangel who's a created being, but he's also a God and he's Jesus. It's so confusing. But if you're not careful and you don't know the real authentic Jesus, then you're going like, well, that doesn't sound, that sounds okay. You know, because they're appealing to your thoughts, not what the truth is. It's the same thing with the, the Mormon religion does the same thing. You know, they have a different Jesus 
So it's important that we know the real Jesus. That's why Jesus said you're going to be led astray if you don't know who the Christ is. You need to understand who the Christ is. Listen, I don't know about you, but if my eternity is at stake of knowing that I'm following the right Jesus, I want to know about that Jesus. I want to know who he is. I want to know everything that I can know about that Jesus so I can make sure that I'm not being led astray like Jesus said. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, people are going to try and lead you astray, but Jesus, you stick to Jesus, you'll be fine. You stick to Jesus, you'll be fine. What, what does Jesus look like? Well, Paul gives us a little detail. So we are, he's already done an incredible job in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, where he really gives one of the most descriptive, uh, you know, uh, descriptions. Whoa, two words, you know, that doesn't work. But anyways, uh, of Jesus himself. Descriptive descriptions. So um, he, he, he goes on here and he helps us, to, he reiterates what he already said. He said, listen, Jesus, the Jesus you're looking for is the Jesus that is full of the deity and who dwells bodily. Now, you have to understand he's, he's addressing a philosophy in this culture. He's, the, he's addressing this dualism idea that, that um, you know, the, the Gnostics believed that the spirit and the flesh are separate. So they didn't believe that anything that is of spirit, which is created by God, could inhabit flesh. So they didn't believe in, in the, 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 the humanity of Jesus. They didn't believe that God dwelt in a body and that he came down and inhabited this flesh. They thought, no, that, that's not the way our philosophy works, so therefore it's not true. Isn't that how false religions start? Yeah, so, so they were teaching that, and Paul just addresses this head on, and he says, no, no. Not only did Jesus come down, he is God, but he came down and he, he inhabited a body. Like he just, he addresses the, the, the issue right away. He wants them to understand in Colossae, yes, the right Jesus is God in the flesh. He truly is Emmanuel. So the first question you ask any, any religion is, who do you say Jesus is? That's the only question that matters, folks. Who do you say Jesus is? Paul says he's God in the flesh. That's the first thing that we look for. Is your Jesus God in the flesh? If he's not, then let me, let me show you why he is. And then you can take him to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. You can take him to here, Colossians 2. And you can tell him, no, Paul says right here that Jesus Christ is the full deity of God dwells in bodily. That means the, the, the full nature and character of God dwells within Jesus Christ in a body, in a body. He goes on to tell us that because God came down and he inhabited a flesh, that we are complete in him. Like, if you're looking for completeness anywhere else except for in Christ, you are looking in the wrong place. Like, I, I, I did a couple weddings here recently, and I was doing some marriage um, counseling. I'm always looking for, like, a good premarital book, you know. And so I'm, I'm like, man, there, there's so much junk out there when it comes to premarital counseling. I was reading this book the other day, and it says, like, the very first thing that it says is, you know, uh, you, you, uh, your, your uh, potential, your new spouse or your potential, your fiancé will completely complete you. No, wrong. Your spouse will never complete you. 
there's no way for any human being to ever complete. Did God make you compatible and bring you together so that you can, the two can become one and so that you can walk down this path together in, you know, stumbling and falling together? Yeah. But listen, she will never complete you and you will never complete her. Only in Jesus are we complete. And what Paul is saying there, and the, the completeness he's talking about, there is nothing left to do. It is 100% done. You might say this morning, you're like, I don't feel like that. I feel like there's a lot to be done here. But, but listen, in terms of vertically speaking, when God sees you, it's complete. You are complete in Christ. Yes, you are working progress on the horizontal as you continue to strive. You know, that this, this thing we call sanctification, the process in which we're, we're constantly being changed, hopefully, to become more like Jesus as we walk in this life. But Understand, the way that God sees you positionally, you are justified. You are sinless in his eyes. You are right with him. You are complete in Christ. And one day, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the twinkling of an eye, man, you're going to be changed and you will be transformed and you will be glorified in his presence. And then you will see with your own eyes what it looks like uh, to be complete in Christ. But you are complete in Christ right now. Not only that, but, but, but Jesus, not only is God in bodily form, he's not only our completer, but also, check this out, he is the head of all rule and authority. There is no authority above him. There is no rule above him. The, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that, that God gave Jesus the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and earth and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and so there is no other authority, there is no other rule beyond Jesus. He is the, the one rule and authority over all things. He is above all things. As Paul put it the, uh, at the end of chapter 1, he is preeminent. He's before all things. He is above all things. Paul goes on to tell us how complete we are in Christ. Here with three specific aspects of what Christ has done for us. Firstly, he says that in him... We have been circumcised spiritually, which, which, was, which was the point in the first place when God instituted circumcision in the Old Testament. You know, the idea is the cutting off of the flesh. I'm going to cut off the flesh. It was first and foremost to be a, um, a sign to the world that you belong to God. So if you were circumcised, I, I don't know how they found out if you were circumcised or not. If they were, hey, let me, I mean, what are, what are you doing? I got to, I got to. See if you're circumcised. Um, but whether or not you are, you know, that, that's, that was the sign, and they did know that. Back in this culture, one of the most intimate ways, like one of the ways that they made agreements was they, they, they gripped the groin. That's how they, they said, yes, I'm, I'm in it with you, whatever it is. The agreement is made. It's that intimate that I got to get in your inner thigh to say, yeah, I'm, I'm in it with you. That's how they shook hands, kind of. That's kind of gross. But, but, but what Paul is saying is he's saying that outward circumcision was meant to be a picture of an inward circumcision. That, that, that the flesh of your heart has been cut away and that it's meant to speak about a purity. It's meant to speak about a separation. It's meant to speak about, you know, a, a declaration that's saying I belong to the Lord. That's what circumcision is. It's very similar to baptism, which he mentions here in a second. But he wants us to understand that circumcision, which is what the Jews were speaking of to the Colossae believers here, were saying, hey, you've got to be circumcised. 
No, you don't. You have to be circumcised spiritually, but not physically. And that's what Paul is saying. Jesus Christ circumcised your heart. He cut the flesh away from you. He made you separate. He made you pure. He, he put that declaration that you belong to him. And so now you're a representative of Jesus, not with human hands, but through his spirit. You were circumcised. That's the first thing, that what it means to be complete in Christ. Secondly, he says, in him you were baptized. And again, baptism symbolizes that we were buried with Jesus, that we were raised again from the dead. We just did a baptism a couple weeks ago. Man, it was so awesome to see these guys be baptized, wasn't it? It was really cool to, 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 to watch people make that public declaration, hey, I belong to Jesus. What it didn't do is save them. Listen, baptism is as powerless to, to save somebody as circumcision is or any other kind of work. It doesn't save you. It's a public declaration. It's a symbol. Again, this is symbolic that you are identifying with Jesus, as Romans 6 says, that you were laid in the watery grave with him. You're identifying with his death. And when you're coming back up, you are identifying with his resurrection, saying, I am a new person. I have a new nature. I'm walking in a new way. Thirdly, Paul points out the fact that we have been forgiven in him. Our trespasses are forgiven. Our debt is paid. The legal demands of the law were satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. It says that he nailed your transgressions to the cross. Jesus publicly displayed Tim Romero's sins, boom, 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 paid for. Your sins, paid for. Some of us can't get over our own sin. But listen, Jesus nailed it to the cross. He get, he's, he's over your sin. So you need to get over your sin. You need to move on. Some of you are holding on to stuff and saying, well, Lord, I, I am repentant. And that's the key is I'm repentant, but Lord, I can't believe that I did that. Listen, the shame was nailed to the cross. And God is, and the enemy is using that to keep you down. And the Lord wants you to move forward. The Bible says he casts your sin as far as east is from the west. He remembers it no more. What in the world are you doing holding on to that? You got to let it go this morning because he nailed your sin to the cross and he became a public spectacle for you. Every single one of us who are true believers in Christ, Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it's for, you know, it's for Susan, it's for Sonia, it's for Gail, it's for Tim. He, he mentioned your name on the cross to give you the forgiveness that you need. And so you are forgiven in him. Not only are you forgiven for your trespasses, but look, he also goes on to say that you have triumph in him. That you have victory in Christ, man. You don't have to you don't have to play a victim in this world anymore. Listen, you're not under the power and the rule and the authority of sin and death and the enemy. Jesus Christ set you free from those things. Now you can make a declaration, no, I'm in him. I'm triumphing in Christ. And, and this, is where, this is where I think some people go over the edge. They, they start saying, oh, I'm triumphing in Christ. I'm going to battle demons. No, just reserve yourself and, and be in Christ. Don't worry about everything else. Just receive the victory that he's given you. Stand behind him. If you get out in front of him, you will get waylaid. You will get pummeled. You stand in Christ and behind Christ and you let him fight the battles, but you receive the victory. He 
He's telling us that, man, we are triumphant in him. And one day, you're, you're, again, you're going to see that triumph in real come to, come to fruition in your life. You will be glorified and you will say, oh, man, you're going to be in, in the presence of the Lord and see him in his full glory one day. And you will see what it looks like to triumph in Christ. Paul goes on to, to, to declare that, listen, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You have victory. Paul goes on here now, and he, he defines the Colossae heresy in three different ways. So he's going to hit it, hit it head on uh, in three specific ways. He's going to talk about legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. First, he's talking about legalism. And what is legalism? It's when we start to apply things um, in our lives as a means of righteousness. So, in other words, I read my Bible because it makes me more righteous. Well, no, you're righteous in Christ by faith. That's what the Bible says. You don't get righteousness from reading the Bible. You get transformation. You, you're changed. You become more like Jesus, but you don't, you don't obtain righteousness. Your justification has been settled. You are righteous in Christ. You know, legalism is essentially a set of rules that, you know, basically people make up whatever they might be. They, they could be in the Bible, but they, 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 they make up these things and say, well, if you do that, man, you're just not, you know, that's, that, that's not, you're, you're not righteous if you do these things. If you, you know, back in the day you hear people, you know, I don't, uh, I don't uh, smoke, drink, or chew, and I don't date girls that do, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. It's like, that, okay, that's legalism, though. If I'm thinking that's how I'm made righteous, if I'm putting all these rules in place to say this is how I'm relating to God, I'm making my way to God. Listen, Jesus Christ related to God for you. What does that mean? We, we're, we're lawless? Uh-uh. That's not what that means. It means that you're, in terms of righteousness, it, that's been settled. Now, how do we relate to the law now? We don't relate to the civil law. We don't relate to the ceremonial laws. We're going to see in a minute Paul's talking. Those things are a foreshadow of Christ. They're meant to represent Jesus. But in terms of how do we live our lives, Jesus said, if you don't obey my commandments, you're not my disciple. So what is our relationship to the law? And, and where does legalism come in? Again, legalism becomes a means of righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is, because you're my disciple, because you will appeal to love, you're going to walk according to my commandments. There's a difference. One is relational. One is religious. And so legalism is religion. And he goes on to say, he goes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Because Jesus has triumphed over the enemy and our sin, we no longer need to worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, or, and the festivals and such that we're going to celebrate. You have what's called freedom in Christ, right? So you can choose to eat pork or not eat pork. That's up to you. Something you get to choose to. If your conscience is, 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 is bothered by eating pork, then don't eat pork. Because the Bible goes on to say that if it bothers your conscience, don't do it. It's sin for you. But it's not how you're made righteous. Paul's saying you can choose to eat whatever you want to eat or not. You can choose to drink whatever you want to drink or not. You can choose to celebrate whatever holidays you want to celebrate or not. None of these things are a means of righteousness, and none of these things are necessarily sin. 
He's saying you have freedom in Christ. You choose what you want to do in these things. You want to drink alcohol? Just don't get drunk. You know, you want to celebrate Christmas, which, by the way, is a human tradition. It's not in the Bible. But people make it like it's in the Bible. You know, what? You don't celebrate Christmas? What's wrong with you? I, I mean, I do, but um, I'm not crazy about it. But, but listen, because it's commercialized. But, but that's a whole different story. And I won't talk about Santa either. But um, <laughs> whatever you want to do, in this life, in terms of when it comes to eating and drinking and celebrating festivals, you want to, like, celebrate the festivals of the Old Testament? Do it. But don't do it as a means of righteousness. Don't think for a second that you're getting any more favor with God than you already have because guess what? You have 100%. You, you already have his favor. You can't get any more. But you're free to choose what it is that you want to choose to do. Jesus Christ satisfied the requirements of the law. That's what we just talked about, when he nailed it to the cross. He satisfied everything that was required of you. Paul tells us that, again, these things are foreshadowings. Um, have any of you guys been following my, my uh, blog on, or my devotions on, during the weekdays? And we walked through the book of Exodus not too long ago, and, dude, we, we looked at the tabernacle and the way the tabernacle was set up and how everything in the tabernacle points you to Jesus. Everything from the, the cover of the tabernacle to the furniture of the tabernacle to the utensils of the tabernacle, they all point you to Jesus. And I tell you, if you've never done this study before, the entire Old Testament is like that. Everything is symbolic. There are people that symbolize Jesus. There are, there are things that, uh, that people do, the rituals that God in instituted that are meant to be foreshadowings of Jesus. What is a foreshadowing? What is a shadow? He says they're a shadow. A shadow in and of itself is nothing. It's simply, it's what's casting the shadow that matters. And people want to go, oh, the shadow is so cool. Well, wouldn't you rather just hang out with the person that's casting the shadow? Like, that's the point. And that's what he's saying. These things, man, are not a means of righteousness. The substance... It all boils down to it. The substance is Christ. It's about Jesus. They point us to Jesus. So, in other words, you have freedom to do these things however you choose to do them, but don't, don't you dare do them <clears throat> as a means of righteousness. <coughs> I got the same thing that lady got, and the two ladies got last yesterday at the end of the day with my throat now. <clears throat> Must be the lights drying you out or something, but... Um, Anyway, so he, he goes on here. He speaks about legalism first. Now he's going to move into mysticism. The, there was Jewish mysticism, the idea that, oh, we have secret knowledge and, you know, you have to come to us in order to really, for us to really tell you what, who God is and what he's in. Do you know that um, the, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons both, that their, relig that their esh upper echelon religious people are continually getting new light from God, and so there's new revelation coming out. That's why the New World Translation changes all the time. And that's also why, like, they're, when, when the Mormons go and they have their big whatever it is that they do, the big gathering or whatever, they, they say, we can't wait to hear what the prophet has to say this year. Listen, this is the same thing that was happening back then. There is nothing new under the sun, folks. This is identical. The same deception that was happening back in the church in Colossae is happening today. It's just called something different. That's all it is. The enemy does not change. He goes on here and he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and, 
uh, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason, by his sensuous mind and holding fast to the head, um, and not holding fast to the head from the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul goes on here and he says, these false teachers in Colossae are insisting that you ascribe to their mystical ways. Oh, you have to be into asceticism, which is, we'll talk about more in a minute, but it's, it's essentially self-denial, and it's the idea that, you know, through sacrificing my body and myself that I'm some way becoming righteous. It's like a separate separation um, in, in a way. It's, it's really, it could be translated, maybe your Bible translates it, false humility. That's also another, or self-abasement. That's another way that it's described. So he's saying that that's one way that these Jewish mysticists were we're talking about also the Greeks, um, that, that you would they would insist that you follow their asceticism. This is the way you follow God. Listen, um, the only person that I've ever heard say that is the Apostle Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ. You know, if somebody in this world tells you that, say, I'm not following you. Uh-uh. I'm following Jesus, man. I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm going to follow his word. No, no, I got some new things I want to show you. No, thanks. Not interested. Um, he goes on and he talks about not only does, is it asceticism, but it's also the worship of angels. This was prevalent in this region of Phrygia here. Uh, in fact, in the third century, uh, a, a commentator, William Henriksen, uh, noted in AD 363 that, a, that there was a, um, a meeting held in the, in the city of Laodicea for Christians that declared this. It is not right for Christians to abandon the church of God and go away to invoke angels. Angel worship. Like, we're obsessed with angels in our culture, too. Angels are created beings. You know, and this goes, this goes right back to Romans chapter 1, where people want to worship the creation rather than the creator. The idea of worshiping angels is this. The angel... The angelic being becomes my mediator before God. There is one mediator before God. He is not an angel. He is God in the flesh. His name is Jesus. We don't need another mediator. That's why we don't. That's why angels will not receive worship either. And anytime you see in the Bible um, somebody encounter an angel, unless it's the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, by the way, which does receive uh, worship in the Old Testament. That's called a Christophany where it's a pre-appearing of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You see it in various different places, um, and we can talk about that later. But, but the, the point of it is that, it, you know, angels in the Bible, anytime anybody encountered an angel and they fell down at their feet, they were like, no, 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 get up, get up, don't worship me, worship the Lord. They're not your mediator. They're created beings, and they're, they're serving God and, and making, you know, helping you in different ways. In fact, the Bible says that they're learning from us. You know what they're learning? They're learning the grace of God. They watch us do really stupid stuff, and they go, how can you just keep doing, what do you do, you keep doing this, Lord? It's about my grace. It's, let me demonstrate what love looks like. And so we're teaching angels about the love and the grace and the mercy of God as he ministers to us. So the third thing that he mentions is this new revelation by way of spiritual vision. Listen, we don't need more revelation. We have complete revelation through the Word of God. 
Now, now we, we believe in, in the gift of prophecy in terms of the foretelling of God's Word. But, you know, in terms of God has already said from the end, from the beginning, what's going to happen. Like, and He gives people vision on those kinds of things, but nowhere will it come out of, you know, somewhere that doesn't match what the Bible already says. Like, God will give a person a word of knowledge and those kinds of things. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But there is an ultra-charismatic movement out there that basically makes prophecy in terms of the foretelling uh, uh, of, you know, foretelling of some future event that's going to happen or something and, and these visions and stuff to be the primary emphasis of their service, which is not biblical. The primary emphasis of our service, why we gather here today, is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why we're here. That's why we gather together. And because you have a gift to impart to me, and I have a gift that I want to impart to you, and we're working as a body, as one, to minister to each other and encourage each other. We're not here to, to you know, just, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be bold and say make up stuff or let the demonic realm come out and, 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 and you know, we, we call things that are demonic um, godly. Like this is from God, you know. Um, and, and, and if you watch, if, the way that you can tell if something's from God or not, this is very key, who's the center of it? Who's the center of it? Is man the center of it or is God the center of it? If it's all about me, that's not of the Lord. But if it's about the Lord, that's of the Lord. If man is the center, it's not of God, folks. He doesn't share his glory with anyone. So you can make that for sure. But Paul's saying these guys were going around saying, hey, I got a special vision from God. Let me, let me tell you what he said and all that kind of stuff. Beware of when people come up to you and say, God gave me this vision about you. You pray about that. <laughs> you ask the Lord, is that really of you, Lord? You know, we have to beware. See to it that no one leads you astray or, or de deceives you. Thirdly, he talks about asceticism. If with Christ you died to the elemental world, spirits of the world, you are still alive in the world. Do not submit to regulations. Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to all things, to, to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism, as I mentioned before, is, is just a lifestyle of self-denial for the sake of righteousness. Listen, these teachers were, 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 were basically saying you got to live like we live. You got to sacrifice like we sacrifice. You have to, in order to be righteous, you got to do these things. Now, self-denial, listen, is a Christian principle. It is. Jesus said, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot follow me, right? But that denial has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your sanctification. Your self-denial in Christ, when you're denying your flesh, is for the sake of becoming more like Jesus. The, the self-denial that these guys are talking about is their means of righteousness. That's not what, what, what we're called to do in, in, in Christ. He is, he is satisfied uh, everything that we need, and he's reconciled us to the Father. 
These guys were saying, oh, you, you can't touch this thing. You can't taste this thing. You can't handle this thing. It's all legalism. It's, it's rules and self-discipline for the sake of righteousness. And did they, did they appear as super spiritual? Probably. Most of the time, super legalist people, very religious people, they seem to have it like on the outside, like, whoa. But do you remember what Jesus said about the super religious? He said, dude, you guys are nothing but whitewashed tombs. You guys are a brood of vipers. You guys go travel across the world, he said, to lead one proselyte to, 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 to the Lord, and you make them twice as a disciple to go to hell, is what he said to them. Whoa. But man, did they look good. Beware of the outward appearance. The only road that leads to eternal life is the one that leads to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And when we identify with Jesus, when we are crucified with Christ and we're risen with him, then, then our debt is settled. Why in the world would we go backwards to asceticism, to mysticism, to legalism? Why in the world would you go backwards? Let me tell you why. Because you want to contribute to your salvation. That's the legalist in you. Beware. Be satisfied with what he's done. You're complete in Christ. Paul says that there is no value of any of these things as it relates um, to the indulgence of the flesh. It will not help you. It will hurt you. Stick to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. May we yield to the wise words of J.C. Ryle who said this, In Christ alone, God's rich provisions of salvation for sinners is treasured up. By Christ alone, God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can cleanse us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven. Jews and Gentiles, learned and unlearned, kings and poor men, all alike must either be saved by the Lord Jesus or lost forever. Nothing else has value, folks. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Deception does not stand a chance against a faithful believer in Jesus Christ if we keep our eyes fixed on him. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for your goodness in our lives and just for allowing us this time together to, to worship, Lord, to hear your word. And uh, we thank you for reminding us once again that Jesus is all we need, that we have uh, our sins are forgiven in him, that in him and with him we have everything. And Father, we, we just ask this morning that if there is any, any clarification that's needed on our own hearts regarding that, that you have made that clear this morning, Lord. We ask, Father, for uh, just a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would continue to relate to you, God, in a way a relational way and not in any other way. We're satisfied in you. You're enough for us, Lord. And so just baptize us in your spirit, Lord. Help us to rest in the works of Jesus Christ and to represent him well in this world, Father. Take your disciples from this place, Lord. Encouraged, built up, Lord, with a word to share with those around us. And help us not to fear the enemy, but to fear you alone and to allow your word to shine through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.